CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Hey, happy post-Christmas, pre-New Year's Eve. Boy, is there a pile of news. First of all, the story that is being played in the press about Donald Trump's phone call with a seven-year-old over the weekend, he and Melania were manning the phones with NORAD, where little kids can call and say, where's Santa and his reindeer? And NORAD says, well, it looks like they're coming over Boston right now. So he got this little girl, Coleman Lloyd, seven-year-old girl, on the phone and told her that he thought it was only marginal for a girl who was seven years old to believe in Santa Claus. Now, Everybody is like, oh my God, Donald Trump is trying to ruin Christmas. I don't think that's the big story, and I think everybody else has missed the big story. And this is what kind of blows my mind, frankly. The big story is that Donald Trump, being a malignant narcissist, being the center of his own movie, being the only person in the universe who is a real person who actually feels emotions, Donald Trump doesn't understand appropriate behavior literally doesn't understand appropriate behavior. He doesn't know when it's time to say something and time to not say something. You know, the horrible consequence of that is not, for us as a country, is not that he's blowing up Santa for seven-year-olds. It's that when Erdogan gets him on the phone, the dictator of Turkey, and says, I want to slaughter the Kurds in northern Syria. Will you please get out of the way so that I can do this? Trump goes, okay, they're yours, without even a thought. Right? This is a symptom of something much, much larger. Meanwhile, we just learned that, indeed, Donald Trump got his bone spurs from a doctor who was renting his office and apartment. In fact, two doctors renting their offices and apartments from his dad, Fred. Apparently, it was a favor, this over at the New York Times. A second child in the last couple days, this time an eight-year-old boy from Guatemala, has died in our custody. Donald Trump and Kirsten Nielsen now have, I believe it's over 30 deaths on her watch. This is Felipe Alonso Gomez. He died hours before Christmas. He died on Christmas Eve. And then uh, back on December 8th, uh, Jacqueline Cal McKean, also of Guatemala, died after uh, fewer than 48 hours in ICE custody. Here in Portland, the national tradition is continuing. Uh, Jermaine Massey, 
young African-American guy, lives in uh, up in Washington State. He'd never been to Portland before. He came down to see Travis Scott play at the Moda Center and was staying at the Doubletree Hotel in the Lloyd District. He'd already checked in. His stuff was in his room. He came back from the concert, noticed on his phone that his mother had called, and it was kind of late back east, so he decided he'd give her a shout before he got up to the hotel room. So he sat down in the lobby to call his mom, and they called the police on him. Yep, talking on the phone while black. Meanwhile, the Saudis have apparently successfully gotten one of their guys out, 21 years old, Abdul Rahman Samir Noura, 21, is accused of killing Fallon Smart, 15, of Portland, Oregon. He's been missing for a year, this guy who killed this little kid, hit and run, apparently a drunken hit and run. And now the Saudi Arabia has notified the Portland police, yeah, we got him out of the country. Apparently they got him a phony passport and put him on a private plane. Moral of the story, if you're Saudi and rich, not to worry. There's no extradition treaty with Saudi Arabia. And we're discovering why Donald Trump doesn't want interest rates to go up. Deutsche Bank holds a bunch of loans that all, you know, Trump's interest payments go up when the interest rates go up. He owes $50 million on the Trump Tower in Chicago. It's prime minus five, uh, five tenths of a percent. Uh, he owes over $50 million in the old post office in Washington. That's prime plus two percent. Oh, my God. And the Trump National Doral in Miami, he owes over 50 million bucks, and it's prime minus 0.75. And that's just the stuff that we know about because Deutsche Bank has revealed it. And last little head-scratching thing, and then I'm going to get into this whole privatization rant. Jerry Falwell Jr. has engaged in uh, what, according to the Miami New Times, is an exceedingly odd business deal. I mentioned this last week very briefly, but uh, the story has gotten much more bizarre and much larger. He and his wife were staying at the Fontainebleau. They met this 21-year-old pool boy. And suddenly, Falwell Jr., they welcomed the pool attendant into their lives, began flying him around on a private jet, and put up millions of dollars to help his business ventures. He didn't even have any business ventures before Jerry Falwell decided that he was uh, going to be best buds with this young man, shall we say. They bought a building for $1.8 million and gave part of it to the pool boy along with a 120-bed hostel where beds cost $20 a night. What's that about? The deal was set up by Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's lawyer. Oh, really? Was the pool boy... Hmm. And Falwell put $800,000 into renovations for this property. There's something going on here. And nobody's willing to say it out loud. I'm not going to say it out loud. I'll just let you scratch your head and wonder what the heck is going on. But apparently, right after Falwell's first encounters with the pool boy in Miami, he, quote, told Granda to search for a profitable business idea and promised that he would purchase finance or establish this business for him. Uh, the Falwells had bought the property for $4.65 million, and he is now one of the owners. The pool boy. Something strange. Okay, let me get to the Roman Republic the fall of the Roman Republic. This is absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, I did as a, one of our book reports uh, a week or two ago, Mortal Republic by Edward J. Watts. The subtitle is How Rome Fell into Tyranny. And basically, you know, it boils down to this. These two, quote, populares, populists, Tiberius Gracchus and his younger brother Gaius, who, uh, you know, in the later years of the Roman Empire were the emperors, and their big contribution to Roman history is that they privatized the Roman military. Now, by the late 2nd century B.C., 
By that time, the army had essentially been privatized. Now, prior to this, in the early days of the Republic, soldiers thought of their participation in military service as a civic duty, writes Yashe Monk in the book review over in the New York Times today, which is how soldiers think of service to America right now, unless they happen to work for Blackwater. So once the army was privatized, what happened was, and I quote from the review, commanders knew that the plunder of new lands could garner them vast riches. Soldiers signed up for the ride in the hope of gaining, you know, generously. With soldiers increasingly loyal to their commanders and commanders doing whatever it took to maximize the prospect of private profit, the Senate, in other words, the government of Rome, was no longer in charge. Thus, the Roman Empire collapsed. It was privatization. The other thing that we learned is that the VA was taken advantage of by paying billions in fees, Secretary says. It's called the Veterans Choice Program. And to cut Trump a little slack, this was actually rolled out during the Obama administration, another brilliant neoliberal idea. Let's privatize the VA. But the two companies who were hired to run the program, they have taken 24% of all the cash, $2 billion, in fees. One of the worst, one of the two big companies, well, I don't know if it's worse, but TriWest Healthcare Alliance, despite a criminal investigation of the company for wire fraud and misused government funds, is handling billions of dollars of your tax money. Senator John Tester of Montana says, if it costs more to be in the private sector, if administration costs are higher, benefits are going to be cut. Yeah. So here we see how privatization of the military took down the Roman Empire. And Trump is now aggressively privatizing our Veterans Administration. And in fact, it's gone on steroids since the Obama administration handed this program off to them. Meanwhile, they're not cracking down on corporate crime. In fact, El Contraire, in the final months of the Obama administration, Walmart was under pressure from federal officials to pay nearly a billion dollars and accept a guilty plea for a bribery investigation. Barclays owed $7 billion. Royal Bank of Scotland was in a criminal investigation. After President Trump took office, they looked to his administration for a more sympathetic year and got one, writes Ben Protest in the New York Times. Across the corporate landscape, the Trump administration has presided over a sharp decline in financial penalties against banks and big companies accused of malfeasance. They are, as they say, giving away the store. 62% drop in penalties imposed, 62% drop in illicit profits ordered returned, 72% decline in corporate penalties from criminal prosecutions. While the SEC ordered banks to pay $1.7 billion during the Obama period, that's four times as much as during the same two years in the Trump era. Trump only brought 17 cases against the banksters. Obama brought 71. The headline, Trump administration spares corporate wrongdoers billions in penalties. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So when are we going to wake up to how privatization of things that should be the commons end up inevitably screwing us and risk the republic? Chris in Salem, Oregon. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, gee, I didn't know about that Saudi Arabian guy in Portland. I wonder if uh, 
local right-wing host, I won't say his name up there, is going to bring that up. I, I doubt he's not, but of course, if it were an illegal alien, um, boy, he would be all over that. Yeah. But, you know, something just dawned on me while you were talking about the privatization agenda, and especially Eric Prince, you know, having some sway, obviously, in, like, Trump's ear. If we went, you know, this purist ideology of the Second Amendment guys, like, want... You know, there are some libertarians that say we should be able to own a surface-to-air missile. If corporations and individuals were able to buy these type of weapons, do you think we could see a return to Pinkerton-style policing? Because now they have access to what police departments have, and that could be a double-edged sword. That's it writ small, Chris, yes. Writ large, look at the U.S. forces in Iraq. Right now, we're down our soldiers, in quotes, are down to basically just supporting the local Iraqi military. You know, we do airstrikes. and th- Same thing we're doing in Syria. We've only had four fatalities in two years in Syria because the Kurds, you know, thousands and thousands of Kurdish soldiers have died. They've been fighting on our behalf. Well, in Iraq, the ones fighting on our behalf, in addition to the Iraqi army, are Blackwater and, well, what's now... They've got another name now, but and several other private military forces. So we've privatized our military, which makes them invisible. And we don't know how much they're doing what the Roman army did, that is plundering and looting for their own benefit. But they're certainly plundering and looting us. You know, we're paying a couple hundred thousand dollars per soldier per year for these guys, whereas a regular GI costs us about $30,000 a year at, you know, entry level. And so the question, Chris, is... If this policy that we have put into place in Iraq and Afghanistan, and perhaps in other parts of the world, you know, most of this stuff is classified and we just don't know the details, but if this policy of privatizing our military comes home and we see the privatization of our police departments, then I think it's very, very possible that the scenario that you're talking about, really a bizarre Blade Runner scenario, might end up being played out here in the United States. What do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, and so, but then I feel like it could easily be sold because for some reason, generally, even though Bernie Sanders is the chair of the Veterans Committee, and but generally, conservatives and Republicans are seen as that was that was that was back for what only a year or so, two years, the first two years of the Obama administration. When the Democrats control the Senate, Bernie hasn't been running the VA, the Veterans Affairs Committee for a while. Okay, well, I mean, but we need we need to have this meme. I feel like Sammy Duckworth and the gal over in, trying to remember her name, in Hawaii, the representative over there, yeah. um, really great progressive lady. She's also a vet. Tulsi Democrats Gabbard. Need to, yeah, Tulsi Gabbard. The Democrats need to be the party of veterans and the military because I feel like conservatives and libertarians and Republicans will sell a privatization effort and pro-military people will be for it because generally they identify with conservatives and it would be an easy sell. Yeah, yeah. That said, I'm pandering to the military. A pandering period is always a very, very dangerous path. You know, we, we need to be doing engaging in policy based on what's the best thing for the country not, you know, what's going to win elections. But your points, Chris, are all very well made. Chris, thanks a lot for the call. We'll be right back. We all want to find the perfect unicorn gift to give at the holiday gift exchange or to family and friends that'll really stand out, right? I have one that will be the talk of the office, a hit with friends and family, and will actually be useful. 
Tiger Lady. Tiger Lady has been featured in Runner's World Gift Guide two years now. You may know Tiger Lady as the revolutionary self-defense tool based on a cat's retractable claws. When you make a fist, three claws come out like a real-life wolverine. It's lightweight and designed to collect DNA. Tiger Lady doesn't require training, and it's legal in all 50 states. It's recommended by police and self-defense instructors, making it the perfect stocking stuffer for anyone on your list. Tiger Lady will make your loved ones feel aware and confident when they walk alone. Order by December 14th for free shipping in time for Christmas. Go to TigerLady.com or use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, for a 25% savings and to receive a free whistle LED flashlight keychain while supplies last. Give the gift of safety this year by giving Tiger Lady. Remember, use the code CHEER, C-H-E-E-R, and go to TigerLady.com. That's TigerLady.com. So what's the price Americans pay for privatization of the commons? Possibly the destruction of our republic. Certainly the looting of our republic. I mean, we've been seeing that under Republican presidencies since Reagan. Back in the 1920s, we saw it under Republican presidencies like Harding and Coolidge, in particular, the whole Teapot Dome scandal. Hey, you know, we've got this big gas reserve out in Wyoming. Let's just give it to Albert Fall, the Secretary of the Navy. Wouldn't that be nice? It's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? Tom, thank you so much for taking my call. I think the price is that going to be destruction of our democracy, where basically uh, there will be no rules or law. And I think one of the reasons why we need to do is get rid of the citizen united. That should be the first thing we uh, eliminate. Yeah, but the new name for the Blackwater is called Z. And Eric Prince, I don't know if you remember, in the beginning of the year, that's what he was advocating for, privatizing the war in Afghanistan and yep. in Iraq. And I think Trump, by withdrawing all the troops, trying to replace it with private military, that's really, I think, his intention, where he can profit from it. I think he's uh, already that, done it to some extent. It was during George W. Bush, actually, even before Obama, the Blackwater started providing military services in Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah. And I'm sure that they have been doing it all along. I mean, this yeah, is a yeah, huge yeah. honeypot for Eric Prince. Sure. During the Iraq war, Eric Prince lived pretty much in the White House. He was there spending every night. But what I wanted to call about is, Tom, if you look at throughout the history, going back to Clinton, he ran as an outsider from Hope, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Same thing, Bush ran as from Austin, Texas. Barack Obama said, I'm different, I'm new, you know, I'm not from Washington. Trump, same thing, he ran as an outsider. I really think for us to get someone in the White House in 2020, he has to be an outsider. And better O'Rourke is the best person. He's an outsider. He needs to get on the road now as far as campaigning and talking to people in the Midwest and then in the Rust Belt area, you know, about the kitchen table issues. He is. I mean, you know, he's clearly running for president. He's getting himself in the news. I mean, he was in headlines in both the Washington Post, the New York Times. He's definitely out there. And the war has begun. I mean, the serious war on the left. Joe Biden, we're not hearing so much from, but the three top polling Democrats right now for president, and this far out, it's meaningless, but the three top Democrats polling for president right now are Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, and Beto O'Rourke. David Sirota, he used to be uh, Bernie's, I don't think he was chief of staff, but he played a prominent role in Bernie's communications director, that's right, has written a, a couple of pieces over the last few days, basically just scorching Beto, saying that he's a new dumb and he's not progressive and he supports corporatization and blah de blah de blah You know, I've read them. I can't dispute them. On the other hand, I think it's entirely possible that people can change. And so I just yeah, don't absolutely. know. You know, I don't know. But I think your point that an outsider 
Obama ran as an outsider. The outsiders have been dominating. In 2000, George W. Bush ran as an outsider. You know, he was he was just the governor of Texas. You know, not from Washington D.C. And then, of course, Obama and and then Trump. I mean, you know, Trump ran as an outsider. So I think that you're onto something, Omar. And I suspect, but but on the other hand, I think that Bernie is also perceived as an outsider. Joe Biden, of course, is the ultimate insider, which I think is going to work to his detriment. I really don't think he's got a chance. But we'll see. We'll see. Omar, thanks for the call. I tweeted over the weekend or over the holiday that there's this sealed indictment against a bank or excuse me, against a a foreign corporation that the foreign corporation actually is fighting in the U.S. courts and it went to the Supreme Court. And so under seal in, in secret, the Supreme Court is looking at this case where this foreign organization is saying Robert Mueller does not have the authority to demand what he's demanding of us. And we don't know what that is, but so I tweeted, you know, I think it's Deutsche Bank. Now, other people tweeted back saying, no, I don't think it's Deutsche Bank because Deutsche Bank is actually majority owned by a bunch of big American companies and hedge funds and billionaires and whatnot. Uh, It's not even a German owned bank anymore. Um, so maybe not. I mean, you know, the other the other one might be VBE Bank, which is the Russian bank, which is government owned or I think majority government owned and uh, that had signed the paperwork or uh, if, if it hadn't reached that point, had indicated the willingness to sign the paperwork to finance the Trump Tower in Moscow. That that actually, uh, in retrospect, is making more sense. But in response to my initial tweet that I thought it was Deutsche Bank, because you know, they're the only bank that has been willing to loan money to Donald Trump since the 90s, since his bankruptcies. He's gotten money from two sources, from, from uh, you know, money laundering uh, via offshore oligarchs, many of them Russian, but also from a whole bunch of other countries. Money laundering. The Saudis and the Emiratis and, you know, very, very wealthy middle-aged sheikhs and Deutsche Bank. That's it. That's where all the money that has kept this, this uh, little, what, 15, 20-person business called the Trump Organization in, in, in going. We all think of him as some giant mogul. Well, he's not. He's running a, a licensing operation. He, he's got you know, fewer than a couple dozen employees and, and uh, is probably net in debt. He's probably not even a billionaire. He's probably, he, uh, probably my net worth exceeds his. Probably your net worth exceeds Donald Trump's. Although, you know, we don't know because we haven't seen his tax returns. But what we do know, as he is railing about uh, Chairman Powell of the Fed raising interest rates back up to a reasonable level, keep in mind, as we hit each recession all the way back to the, to the 1940s, the average interest rate in the United States, the average federal funds rate, the, the, you know, the, the benchmark interest rate, had been in the neighborhood of 5%. The last couple, it was around 6%. And we go into a recession, and to get us out of the recession, the bank then can lower the interest rate so that people borrow money and companies borrow money. They spend that money into the economy. Spending money into an economy stimulates the economy, which gets you out of the recession. But in order to be able to successfully get you out of the recession, you have to have interest rates that are high enough that you can lower them. 
Now, I realize there are some people who are saying this is not the best way to get out of a recession. We should instead do what Australia does. Australia has been largely unaffected by recessions for 30 years. And the reason why is that the Australian government has this massive multi-hundred multi billion, maybe trillion dollar, uh, basically rainy day fund. And this, this giant surplus. And whenever the government, whenever the economy goes into recession, they actually write checks to people. Seriously, you're an Australian citizen, you get a check. And or they write them to employers. I mean, this is what Germany did during in 2009. They called it the Kurzarbeit program, short work program. And uh, the government said to the to the factories, uh, put people on uh, three quarters of a week or a half a week instead of working 40 hours a week, have them work 30 hours or 20 hours. But we're going to pay them for the full week. You pay them for the works, the hours that they actually work, and we'll make up the difference. And that's how Germany prevented the recession from being severe for them. They, they had, you know, probably the best response to it. But Australia did something very similar. And we could do that. But, but you know, that's kind of a, a peripheral tangent here. The point is, this is how we do it. And the Fed's got to get the interest rates back up to 5 or 6% in order to, you know, to be ready to deal with the next recession, because that's how we do it, right? We do it through our banking system, unlike Australia and Germany. So Trump is squealing like a stuck pig about interest rates going up. Now, why would that be? Now, he says it's because it's hurting the stock market. Eh, you know, it might have some small effect on the stock market, but mostly it's hurting people who borrow money, like Donald Trump. He owes Deutsche Bank $50 million for the Trump Hotel and, and Tower in Chicago, according to the Financial Times today. He owes uh, Deutsche Bank over $50 million uh, at, in, in the interest rate. By the way, these are all variable interest rate loans. So when the, you know, when the prime rate goes up, his payments go up. It was prime minus a half a percent on the Trump Tower in Chicago. The old post office in Washington, D.C. This is the Trump uh, Hotel, Trump International in D.C. He owes them over $50 million, and it's prime plus 2%. So he's paying, you know, like closing in on 5% right now. The Trump National Doral in Miami, he owes Deutsche Bank over $50 million, and then he has a separate loan with them for 5 to $25 million. And that's prime plus uh, minus 0.75 percent. So uh, strange goings on. This is actually from a story from August 30th, 2017, titled Donald Trump's Debt to Deutsche Bank, if you want to check it out. But, uh, you know, people have been wondering, why is Trump so hysterical about interest rates? Maybe it's going to put his his business empire at risk. In the first hour of the program, I was talking at some length about the scams that are being run uh, by the Trump administration. Uh, the New York Times reporting that, uh, for example, at the end of the Obama administration, Walmart owed a billion dollars on a foreign bribery investigation. Of course, nobody was going to go to jail. We don't do that anymore, but, you know, bribery is a crime. Barclays uh, was going to have to pay $7 billion to settle civic, civic, civil claims. Uh, in other words, they ripped people off. They were going to have to reimburse that. Real Bank of Scotland was ensnared in a criminal investigation. Obama leaves, Trump comes in. Eh, it's all good. Don't worry, guys. The New York Times writing about this, how the Trump administration, 62% drop in penalties and, and uh, illicit profits ordered to return. 72% decline in corporate penalties. A uh, lighter touch of the banking industry. Uh, Obama brought 71 actions against the banks in the first two years. Trump, 17. Yeah.
Jim in Poway, California. Hey, Jim, what's up? Was I dreaming, or did I really hear Donald Trump say he came to San Diego and went one-on-one with people, and they all said, build that wall for us? I didn't hear the quote, but it I, wouldn't surprise I mean, me. I can't believe that he'd even, first of all, come to San Diego and talk to people. Yeah. But, but that's what he said. Yeah. Do you live near San Diego? No, I live in San Diego. I actually live in Poway, which is just a few miles from San Diego proper. Uh-huh. And so how do San Diegans think about Trump and think we, about the We have wall? a mix, but it's a fairly liberal city, so there's your answer. Well, you've got a wall there in, in you know, south of San Diego between you and Tijuana that went up well, I, you know, in, I the, don't in the think late 80s, early 90s, didn't security. it? That's the silly part. People want security, but right. we don't need a wall to do it. Right. Well, you've got something on the order of a million border crossings a day. Um, no, it is. I think it's the busiest border crossing in the world, if I remember right. Yeah. It can be done with drones now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I looked at the, uh, the the immigration people, and they were showing a program. They they have these mobile drones, and they go on these jeeps, and they go out there. They don't need all this stuff. Yeah, and an so awful base, lot of the base isn't going to believe reality. So I'm, I'm afraid no, that's no, it's where just, we are today. So. It's all about brown people, Jim. Yeah. That's yeah, the bottom line. Unfortunately, that's true. It Keep really up the good work, Tom. Thanks a lot, Jim. Good to hear yeah. from you. From Jim to Jim, and this is Jim in Darien Center, New York. Hey, Jim, what's up? Uh, just a further point on the border between. The U.S. and Mexico is that it's mostly based on the flow of the Rio Grande, mm-hmm. and that it's an ever-changing, ever-changing uh, flow. And that's why they have to set the wall back so far from the river. Yeah, it's impractical. Yeah, and so we end up taking more and more land from the farmers. Right, uh, and their water resources. Yeah. Remarkable. Thanks a lot, Jim. Thanks for the call and for your contribution to the conversation. William in Penrose, Colorado. Hey, William, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. You know, on this wall thing, I have a radical idea. Instead of building a wall, let's build a whole lot more border crossing. Yeah. Let people come in to do their jobs, you know, give them an idea, make the assimilation process easier. Yeah, we did that uh, during the Eisenhower administration, actually. He had this program called the Bracero Program. The problem with it was that it didn't have... I mean, there were multiple problems with it. It was, it was kind of based in a bizarre racist perspective. But, but the biggest problem with it was that the employers were threatening to pull people's Bracero cards if they didn't go along with low wages or sexual exploitation or you know, actual physical work exploitation. Um, it became a license to harass people, basically, on the part of the employers. And that, that's got to oh, wow. be done away with, you know. Well, anyway, the, the thing that I see is that when people come here, they're either fleeing poverty or running for their lives. Yep. And, you know, there was a time when we did the same thing. Yep. Uh, and I just, I don't know, I'm lost a little bit now because I really had another thing. But that's okay. I enjoy your program. Uh, and Jim from New York said one thing that was very astute, I think, is it's very impractical to build a wall that's going to cost billions to build, billions to maintain. And you're right. We have, like, drones that cost 100 bucks to yeah. conserve everything. So yeah. There you go. Yep. William, thank you for the call. As you probably know, Louise and I are basically vegans who eat fish once a month, but odds are you're not. Omaha Steaks has a really great product for the holidays for for those of you who eat meat. This is the gift that families across America have loved for over 100 years. Right now, Omaha Steaks has an amazing limited time offer for my listeners. When you go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT and you'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. Originally $195, now just $49.99. Order now and you'll get four hand-cut tender top sirloin steaks, two savory 
savory premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha steak burgers, four kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four potatoes au gratin, four caramel apple tartlets, plus four more burgers for free. Omaha Steaks is a fifth-generation family-owned company with over 100 years of experience delivering perfectly aged beef hand-cut by Master Butchers in Omaha. This offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code REPORT, R-E-P-O-R-T, REPORT, in the search bar, and get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package. That's omahasteaks.com, code REPORT. The Tom Hartman University Book Club. We're reading from Walking Your Blues Away, How to Heal the Mind and Create Emotional Well-Being from Chapter 1, How Trauma Sticks and the Mechanism of PTSD. One of the enduring mysteries in the field of psychology is why the same event produces such different memories and responses in different people. As the New York Times reported in a July 1st, 2004 article, one out of every six soldiers coming home from the war in Iraq is showing signs of emotional difficulties, particularly post-traumatic stress disorder. Citing a report in the New England Journal of Medicine, the writer noted the researchers surveyed more than 6,000 soldiers in the month before and after service in Iraq and Afghanistan, almost 17 percent of those who fought in Iraq reported symptoms of major depression, severe anxiety, or post-traumatic stress disorder, compared with 11% of the troops who served in Afghanistan. In World War II, post-war depression and anxiety was called battle fatigue. In World War I, we called it shell shock. The question isn't so much why it happens. We know GIs in war do and see horrific things. The question that perplexes us is why post-war anxiety and depression haunts some veterans and not others. Of course, some vets see harder combat than others, but even that doesn't account for the statistics. There are still huge variations among individual soldiers in how they respond to the same event. The same is true in the civilian world. Some people develop PTSD and others don't, facing the exact same circumstances. In order to understand why some people are still shocked months and even years after a traumatic event, it's necessary to first understand how the brain and mind processes trauma. The brain is a complex collection of deeply interconnected parts and processes. I'm vastly oversimplifying here for the purpose of description. In light of those caveats, here's a possible scenario that's not inconsistent with much of what's known about brain function. There's a part of the limbic brain, or visceral brain, called the hippocampus that's believed to function as a one-day scratch pad for memory. Everything you experience throughout the day is stored in the hippocampus. In order for the impressions of the experience to become a long-term memory, they must pass through the hippocampus into the rest of the brain. People with a damaged hippocampus remember past events but have extreme difficulty learning new things. Although the rest of the brain is able to integrate recent information from the hippocampus in relation to stored memories, in order to understand that one thing happened a week ago and another thing happened a month ago, the hippocampus knows only one time, today. During the night as we sleep, the hippocampus dumps its information from the day into the rest of the brain for processing, sorting, storing, and disposing of irrelevant information. As the brain is processing the details of the day from the hippocampus, we experience what we call dreaming. Many sleep researchers are convinced that when we experience REM sleep, most of the events, including the traumas of our daily life, are processed. The processing of information management completed, when we wake up in the morning, the hippocampus is once again empty and ready to record another day. The problem emerges when the hippocampus is carrying information that's too much or too hot for the larger brain slash mind to handle. When a recent memory is too strong to be easily and unremarkably processed, it presents in our dream world as a nightmare. If that still doesn't download the information from the hippocampus, then the trauma either becomes buried in the subconscious, a process Freud re referred to as repression, or it gets thrown back into the hippocampus the next morning. It's as if the brain says, whoa, that's too much for me to process in one evening. Please hang on to it for another day. 
When the person wakes up in the morning, the information is still there in the hippocampus, still remembered and known and felt as if it happened that same very day. The conjecture that the hippocampus knows little about the more distant past accounts for the unique feature of true PTSD that the person feels every day as if the past event happened today, or at least in the very recent past. The trauma is always front, center, new, fresh, and raw. The consequences can be psychologically and emotionally devastating. Every day is affected by a past event. The traumatic event never passes from now until then and is never processed and filed away in the memory banks where it loses the power to cause pain and problems on a daily basis. The impact of this on the mind and the emotions is staggering. Brain scans even demonstrate that before a PTSD event has been processed, the amygdala, a part of the brain responsible for strong emotional states such as those involved with survival or the perception of a threat to survival, and the hippocampus are not functioning normally. The brain scan makes it possible to, in a way, see the effect of the stuck memory. After processing the memory, these parts of the brain usually return to normal functioning. One of the key concepts of many schools of psychology is that human beings are most functional when every part of the mind has access to all other parts. In particular, this functionality is a matter of having full access to positive resources, such as memories of times when we were successful in our undertakings and the good feelings we associate with those accomplishments. Working from this level of functionality then, when we take on a new task, for example, we first remember times in the past when we attempted something similar and accomplished our goals. This functionality can be accessed in all endeavors, from embarking on a new love relationship to making your first public speaking engagement. Memories of past accomplishments and capabilities are stored in parts of the brain far from the amygdala and the hippocampus. The amygdala and hippocampus, part of our brain's most primary and primitive structures, lie deep in the brain. Thus, having a negative memory stuck deep in the hippocampus blocks the pain and fear associated with that memory from reaching and associating with positive memories and resource states, which are housed in more distant parts of the brain. So, in other words, if we don't get these traumatic memories out of the hippocampus, then everything coming in gets filtered through that and blocked having access to resource states that can help and heal us. So the rest of the book is how to get that stuff out of the hippocampus. The book is Walking Your Blues Away. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, we have a whole bunch of special content just for our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M, Hartman with two N's. It includes uh, the entire three hours of our program every day. The whole, the, the entire program is available there that you can watch. And also, we regularly put up new rants. The one I just did is about the Supreme Court. It's based in part on my book, Unequal Protection, and based in part on a book I'm writing, I'm working on right now in the Supreme Court, and in part just, you know, what what I know and you need to know about how the Supreme Court got as badly corrupted as it is. How did we get here, right? I mean, how did we end up with with a bunch of crazy right-wingers on the court? And what can we do about it? There actually are ways that we can address this problem of the corruption of the Supreme Court. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you. Remarkable. Wesley Clark was on CNN's New Day show the day before Christmas, uh, two days ago. And he was talking about our pullout from Syria thus handing the Kurds over to Erdogan to slaughter. Somebody was attacking me on Twitter over the week. Oh, yeah, Hartman's a warmonger. No. I, you know, I, I 
we've said on this program, we never should have gone into Syria in the first place, number one. And frankly, I don't think we should be in Iraq or Afghanistan right now. But once you're in, when you leave, you do it in a way that doesn't, at the very least, endanger your allies, particularly a minority group like the Kurds that have been you know, struggling for their lives for centuries, well, for a century now. So I'm not saying don't pull out. I'm saying if you're going to pull out, involve your allies, threaten the Turks, tell, you know, tell Erdogan, you, you've slaughtered these people, you do it at your own risk. But, you know, let, let's be reasonable about this. Anyhow, so uh, Wesley Clark, he says, there doesn't seem to be any strategic rationale for the decision to pull out of Syria. And if there's no strategic rationale for the decision, then you have to ask, why was the decision made? People around the world are asking this, and some of our friends and allies in the Middle East are asking, did Erdogan blackmail the president? Was there a payoff or something? Why would a guy make a decision like this? Because all the recommendations were against it. And by the way, that's true. It's, I mean, literally, the Trump administration has yet to offer a single policy advisor who has come out and said, yeah, good idea. Even Rand Paul is not, is not on board with this. Meanwhile, Joe Kennedy III is tweeting this. This is uh, the Trump-Ryan McConnell trifecta. Four million working-age Americans lost their health care. $1.5 trillion in corporate handout. $779 billion deficit. The worst December stock market since 1931. A 17% increase in hate crimes. 2,654 migrant children taken from their families. 40,000 gun deaths in 2017. The U.S. was added to the list of deadliest countries for the first time in history, as Trump is, uh, this is for journalists, deadliest countries for journalists to cover for the first time in history. This is as Trump is attacking journalists. U.S. greenhouse gas emissions rise by 2.5%. Five Trump aides have entered guilty pleas. 17 Trump-Russia investigations, three government shutdowns, and numerous allies abandoned. Gee. Do you see a trend? Steve in Chicago. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind? Yes, I'm going to make two points. One, I, I would agree with you with regard to a withdrawal from any of these countries where we're currently engaged in, in, in military action. I mean, there's a, there is a way to do things, and we know historically that when countries have abruptly withdrawn, leaving things like infrastructure that they've invested in, uh, military hardware and equipment, it turns out that the people that you were once fighting are more than happy to take up the, that infrastructure, take up those arms that you left behind, and then go ahead and use it for decades against either your interests or other people. And sometimes so, shoot you, know, you on the way out. This is why Jerry Ford did not yeah. announce in advance of the Vietnam withdrawal that he was withdrawing from Vietnam. He oh, announced yes, I mean, it as it was, as it was our, finished. Our, there's our jeeps our, our weapons for decades they're still using them so yeah. you know this idea that you simply just pick up and leave it takes a lot to actually be able to withdraw uh, tanks and large equipment and infrastructure and communications and so forth now if it's true that we were fighting the enemy and that they without us that they're going to take over afghanistan you're going to hand them high-speed communications equipment and and everything else so that they could expedite their agenda right. i mean this is just stupid on its face Secondly, yep. I, I think you're, you're right with regard to this notion about running as an outsider or versus an insider. By that logic, the last insider we had, which was George Bush Sr., 
the fact is that they, this is nothing but a marketing ploy. Uh, poll after poll shows that people in America, when asked, will say that they hate Washington, they hate the legislative branch, they think that the judicial branch is politicized as compared to previous generations, and the executive's really the only one who stands a chance of getting a plurality of support in terms of a generic question. So you always want to run as an outsider because whenever you ask Americans what do they think about Washington, they hate Washington. So, you know, everybody wants to be an outsider or declare themselves as such. No one's going to run on the notion that, you know what, I've been here 30 years. That's a great thing. Well, I think no, that's Joe Americans Biden's. That, no, no, Steve, hang on just a second. That is Joe Biden's calling card. That he knows how things work. He's been in the Senate. He's made things happen. You know, we can debate the benefit of those things. But, uh, you know, some of them are good. But that's his calling card. So there really is a, you know, I'm an insider versus I'm an outsider uh, debate going on right now in in the Democratic Party and in the Republican Party, for that matter. Right. I think you're right with regard to Biden, but that's the that's the sort of one-off because it, it, that's only as as counterposed to Trump. Well, and this is this is my point Trump. about why I think Biden is toast because that was Hillary Clinton's calling card too. I'm the ultimate insider. I've been inside this game ever since I left college, or you know, ever since my husband became governor of Arkansas. We know how government works. We know how the levers of power work. Therefore, you can trust us and turn it over to us. And now, given the crazy man that we have in the White House, a lot of us would love to have Hillary and. Dead. Well, that, yeah, that, that, but I still, I still don't and, think insiderness is going to sell. Oh, well, I think it sells only in, in the context of running against someone like a Donald Trump because, you know, we handed over the reins to an idiot. I mean, you don't yeah. say there's a, there's a problem with medicine in America. OK, let's let the janitor down the hallway uh, have the scalpel, you know, which is what we did. Yep. You know, no, you address the problem that, you know, the doctors are imperfect and the system is imperfect. You don't hand the reins over to someone who has no experience doing this sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the metaphor is a little imperfect. I'd say rather than uh, handing the reins off to the janitor, because, you know, janitorial services are something that actually require a fair amount of skill and practice and experience. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we handed it off to, you know, one of the patients who just happened to wander in confused off the street. Uh, Steve. Yeah, and, and in this case, yeah, if, if, if we were using a metaphor of psychology, we handed it over to one of the people who were uh, one of the inmates in the insane asylum rather than uh, someone else serving there in a a support capacity. Right. Absolutely. Steve, thanks for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. You spend every day in your office chair. That's over 2,000 hours a year. So if you're spending all that time in the wrong chair, is it any wonder why you're sore and tired at the end of the day? Ditch that no-name, one-size-fits-all superstore chair and trade up to the X chair. When you feel the X chair difference, you'll understand. My X chair is the most stylish chair I've ever owned. Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. Switching to the X chair, I'm more productive and have more energy. I love my X chair and you will too. X chair is now on sale for the holidays, so buy one for yourself and one for someone you love. X chair is now on sale for $100 off. So call 844-4X-CHAIR or go to xchairtom.com, that's xchairtom.com now to save 100 bucks. And here's a special deal just for my listeners. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and they'll even throw in a free footrest. Go to xchairtom or call 844-4X-CHAIR and use the code TOM for a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com, 844-4X-CHAIR. Rachel in uh, Ukraine. Hey, Rachel, thanks for uh, watching YouTube in Ukraine. What's up? Uh, hi, Tom. Uh, joyous Kwanzaa to you. Thank you. I-, I feel like I don't entirely have the whole story, but um, I'm sure people can figure it out pretty quickly. 
this story about, I think it was Monday, final Christmas shopping. And honestly, I don't even know where it is. Something very, very uh, generically American. And some uh, older white gentleman had himself a rather major meltdown by being served by shop assistants speaking to each other in Arabic. Yes, uh, I saw this on Twitter just about an hour ago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, again, it was one I mean, a lot of people stood up for them and yes. you know, put him in which his is, place. Which is really nice. People are starting to talk back yeah. to the racists. Yeah, my only thought is that I worry, and in this case, it really has looked like, um, you know, pushing back on social media has had a positive effect, but I'm also wondering to what extent folks like him, who's pretty much a walking joke, been emboldened in recent times, and the concern about how much are we platforming them yeah. by... I get what you're saying, and certainly, I mean, the Nazis rose to power based on on the press going, oh my God, look at that, they're beating up Jews. And then a whole bunch of other young white men who hated, who were anti-Semitic said, oh, they're beating up Jews, and they turned out in the streets, right? And it became its own generative thing, and it, it led, uh, arguably, to the Holocaust. That said, I am concerned that, the, you know, the rise of the Proud Boys and these other right-wing groups, these other basically racist groups, are to a certain extent feeding off the publicity, but mostly they're feeding off Donald Trump constantly pounding on this stuff here in the United States domestically. And this trend that we've seen in the last two years in particular since the Trump presidency, and I think a lot of this is explicit pushback to the Trump presidency. Before Trump, it was people of color being shot, right? Shot driving while black, shot walking while black, shot talking to police, whatever it may be. And now it's a little more benign. It's sitting in a hotel while black or so you've got that where, yeah, where, where the bigots are being exposed. And then now there's this new subgenre of these videos, which is where the bigots are not just being exposed, but they're being talked back to. And I, I predict that is the next big thing, right? That people are going to be looking for opportunities to not only film bigots acting like asses, but, but to film themselves or their friends taking down those bigots verbally, you know, uh, you know pointing pointed it out to them. So I, I, you know, I get it's a two-edged sword, Rachel, but it's also, that's the dynamic of our day. And if we don't push back, then Trump and the, the right-wing hate mongers win. It's a really important point that you raise, Rachel, and it's an important conversation for us all to have. And, and frankly, I'm guessing that in some circles, the more responsible media circles, they're really struggling with this. At what point, by reporting on, on what the hard right is doing, do we empower them versus do we empower the opposition to them? And I think it, a lot of it has to do with how it's covered. Rachel, excellent question. Thank you for the call. And thanks again for watching us from all the way over there in Ukraine. Christina in Santa Rosa, listening on KPFK. Hey, Christina, what's up? You know, I just want to thank you for the part about the head injuries. I suffer from a head injury, so that will help me. But um, I also wanted to just talk about the fact that we're all outsiders, <laughs> especially when we don't stand up for the whistleblowers. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and I really wanted to do a shout-out for Reality Winner. Um, yes, I think, yeah, she was one of the first ones to tell us about the Russian interference in the election. Yeah. And she got 10 years in jail for doing so, you know. Was it 10? And I thought course, it was 5. Are you, are you sure? Or am I wrong? I was told it was 10 when it happened, when it went down. I don't, haven't followed her since then. Though. So may, maybe this, because actually I didn't see the story. Louise told me about it. And, and maybe it was she got 10 years and so she's expected to serve 5. Because my question was... She's been in jail for a couple of years right now. I wonder if she's, you know, if that's time served, but apparently not. Apparently she's still in jail. Yeah. 
and uh, it gets back to, was it Kathleen O'Reilly? I forget who it was who told us she was also a whistleblower working, I think, for the FBI. And I'm a little confused about Mueller today because I think they tried to put her away also for mm-hmm. giving us information about the translations that were going on, and she was understanding about 9-11 before it happened. FBI translations, she was correctly translating where people sitting next to her in the translation room were not correctly translating things. So right. it's just, it all depends on who's com- controlling the levels. So we're, we're all outsiders from the insider picnic and how their corporations are running the world. Oh, there's just so much to cover, you know, like <laughs> Citizens United and, and how can we be insiders in our own government and how can we get the Green New Deal that we need now, especially yeah, well, in California. The way, the way we need we to do even, it, Christina, it's, it's very straightforward. We need to engage in politics, and we, need to, and we need to wake up all our friends. John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what's up? Yeah, I uh, am concerned about Israel's reach into our government, mostly its state governments, where apparently in Texas, for instance, this Bahia Amawi was fired because she refused to sign as part of her contract as a speech pathologist, she refused to sign a statement that she would not join boycott and divestment movement or boycott or divest of things herself that she uh, This is apropos not... of Israel. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just think it's outrageous. And, you know, I, until this story broke, I, I was totally ignorant about it because I think a lot of Republican legislatures throughout the country have done this, you know, on the sly. I mean, there has not been a lot of discussion, uh, you know, here in this state particularly. And I was unaware that Minnesota has laws like this. There's about uh, 20 six states that support Israel and will do whatever they can, I guess, through uh, state legislation to prevent uh, boycott and divestment. And I think it's uh, it's really sad. Also, I, you know, I, I, I think it's a, a violation of the First Amendment, John. Yep. And, you know, it, I have a connection with the Palestinian community, and they have really suffered so much within, uh, you know, this century and the last century. They're still suffering. I connect with people in Israel, and on one post, uh, somebody said, well, how many Arabs did we kill today? And they had like a thumbs up. It was four or five people really thought that was a good thing. Mm in one day that they yeah. killed four Arab people, yeah, mostly, I think the, the, sure their you know, children. One of the things to keep in mind is that Israel and Israelis are not monolithic, that there is a strong uh, progressive and democratic movement in Israel. Right. They're yeah. just not in power right now. Right, and I read it on Haaretz. You know, I yeah. was looking for more details. Well, that's I where read, the trolls are going to go, John. Bit, you know, the thing is... <clears throat> They are interfering here in this country with people's rights to express themselves. I don't get that. Yeah, I don't either. And uh, it seems to me like just a blatant violation of the First Amendment. And I don't understand how any Republican would want to do that. But, you know, maybe I'm missing some nuance. John, thank you for the call. David in San Francisco. Hey, David, thanks for listening to 910 AM. What's up? Hey, Tom. I heard you talking about Syria and uh, the Kurds. And I I, I just finished a book about Sam Giancana the famous mobster uh, from Chicago. Yep. It was a book that was written by his brother and his nephew. And it goes into really exacting detail uh, 
from decades, from the 20s up through the 60s or 70s. The issue of, say, for example, heroin smuggling through the Middle East, the players that we're hearing about in Syria are not necessarily who they seem to be. And, uh, you know, are you talking about the Kurds? Get, get, get into bigotry about who the Kurds are, but there are a number of Kurdish smugglers that have been involved in the heroin trade for 50 years, right? Sure. If not upwards. So, you know, when you start looking at Trump as organized crime instead of Trump as political animal, you've got to realize that his deals, his machinations probably have more to do with organized crime. But to leave the Kurds in the lurch, as he appears to do, that must mean that maybe new smuggling opportunities are in line. No, I think it's the other way. I think you're, or maybe I'm misunderstanding you, David. Frankly, I have no idea what the heroin situation is in Syria, but not Iraq, in Afghanistan. The principal heroin growing region is in northern Afghanistan, and it's the so-called Northern Alliance. And these were not Kurds. These were Afghan Arabs who are making their living on the, on the opium trade anyway. It's not heroin typically you know, when it leaves the country. I've never heard that the Kurds were involved in the heroin trade. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if there are some Kurds who are involved in the heroin well, trade. Well, they're actually they're mentioned in this Giancana book from you know 40 years ago and whatnot. Right. But in other words, to look at Trump as what he's doing is a gang war, you know, it may be Trump, the Trump gang versus the Cheney gang, or hmm. the Trump gang versus the Oliver North gang, or the Eric Prince gang. Or, you know, some other gang. Seems to me like they're all playing the same game, David. They're all all, uh, playing international geopolitics to their own benefit and their own profit. Cheney with Halliburton, Eric Prince with with Blackwater and and Z or whatever it's called now. And Trump's got a hotel in uh, Turkey. And it's probably heavily leveraged. And if Trump is really broke, I really think he is. I think the guy's more underwater than he is above water. I think he actually owes more money than he has. If he's really broke, one of his individual properties going down, like, say, the Trump shopping center in uh, Turkey, might be enough to take down the whole company. Oh, it could be. But in the the big picture, these guys are dealing with money laundering. And say, for example, if we've been chasing after all of these banks for now 10 years, all these international organized crime banks, the biggest bank of America, Wells Fargo, much less Deutsche Bank and the others, they've got to be rapidly trying to switch their their money laundering direction and that's probably creating new gangs. So yeah, I think a lot of that is moving to our commerce secretary Wilbur Ross's bank in the right. it's in the Caymans, isn't it? Or wherever it is. David, thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Dave in Armstrong Creek, Wisconsin. Hey Dave, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom, and happy holidays to you and yours. Thank you, Dave. Uh, I'm going to get away from Trump in the wall for a minute here. Okay. Uh, about two weeks ago, Amy Goodman did her whole show uh, in Poland from the Climate Summit. Yeah. And she spent a whole day with a young lady named Greta Thunberg. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard the speech that she gave. I did. Oh, it was so inspiring to yep. me. It You know, because I'm pretty pessimistic about this whole issue, but, you know, if, if the younger generation can emulate her and and do some of the things that she's talking about because she pulled no punches as far as telling people what it is and like you know she was saying that you know you've ignored us too long and we're not going to 
take it anymore. And, and whether you like it or not, we're going to change things. And I know there's a, a lot of the younger people in the United States probably never got a chance to hear that, but yeah. it's it's too bad. But. Yeah, we should we should play some clips from it because it was brilliant. She said uh, one of the things that she said that I thought was uh, real high impact stuff was uh, in. 2078, I will be 70 years old, and my children and grandchildren may well oh, yeah. ask me, what did, what did you do back in that day? And I want to be able to tell them, I'm doing this from memory, so I'm paraphrasing, but basically she said that she wanted to be able to tell them that she actually did something to deal with climate change, even if everybody else was too cowardly. Yeah, it was great. I tell you what, um, yeah. I, I, you know, if you could do some of that, that speech sometime, it'd be really great. Yeah. Okay. Thanks a lot, Dave. I appreciate right. the call. Diane in Lahina, Lahaina, Hawaii? Lahaina. Lahaina. Yeah. Sean used to live in Hawaii. She was just pronouncing it correctly for me. So what's up, Diane? You know, I just wanted to mention that actually when the feds raise the rates so many consecutive times the way that they have been recently. Mm-hmm. Since Trump got in, interest rates have gone up a good 2%. Anyway, if you look historically, that precedes nearly every recession that we have. Yes. So I actually, in this one case, am agreeing with Trump that they need to back off on raising the rates. Well, there's two ways to look at it, Diane. If you look at it as everything is normal and raising rates is going to cause a recession, then yes, your logic is perfect. If on the other hand, you look at it as everything's not normal, and for the last 10 years, the Fed has been juicing the economy with artificially low interest rates, and now they're ending that policy, then the argument would be that what the Dow is doing by dropping, what the, what the economy is doing by slightly contracting, is returning to normal. I still think quite a lot of people are going to be hurt by it. And so I would vote for a more gradual increase of rates and, you know, return to normalcy, if you would call it that. I think the Fed is going Um, to agree with you. As opposed to this very rapid um, return to normalcy, as you would say. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the, the normal average, if you were to average everything over the years, is probably, what, around 4.5%, something like that? I know before every recession. If you figure in the margins that the banks take, we've already surpassed that. So, you know, any of the people that do have adjustable rate loans, the rates are already above that. Yeah, they're at or or, uh, above 5%. And, yeah, that that is a drag on the economy. Diane, thank you for the call. I mean, if they keep on their current trend, I believe they're going to put us back into a tailspin economically as a nation. Yeah. Could be. Diane, thank you very much for the call. And thank you for being with us today. Fascinating day. It's great to be back to work. It's great to be back talking about what's going on in the world and sharing this with you and hearing from you. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 